Well, amen. We are beginning our Christmas series this morning, All I Want for Christmas. And I do want to encourage you to commit as much as possible uh, over the next four weeks to be here and to be a part of this series. And I pray that you will be, um, as I believe God has some amazing things in store for us over the coming four weeks. And I can't wait to dive into all that he has before us. Um, to kind of get us started as we kind of begin this series, uh, I want to ask a, a question. And you are free to answer and free to kind of engage this morning. And so I want to kind of get a little bit of feedback here. And so I want to ask, when you were growing up, okay, so when you were a kid, and for some of us that's a lot different time than others, but we won't go too far into that. But um, when you were growing up, what was that one thing? And usually it actually even goes beyond just one Christmas. It's just that one gift that you asked for, that you wanted so badly, that you honestly were okay if that was all you had gotten that Christmas. Like if it was all you had was this one thing and it was what you got, you would have been okay with just that one gift because you wanted it so badly. And so I want to just take a moment and I want to hear a little bit of feedback here. So someone tell me, what was that one gift you wanted so badly when you were growing up that if when you were a kid and that was all you got, that you were fine. You were good with that one gift. Who's got one like that? What is it? Mystery date. Mystery date game. Okay. All right. I have no idea. Actually, I do know what that is only because of the movie, The Santa Claus. Okay. Awesome. Who else? Oh, it's Okay. <laughs> Not hand-me-downs. That's what we're getting at, right? Brand new, new to Steve, my ear, tag on them, no stains, no nothing. Love it. My own clothes. All right. Yeah, Doug. Okay, a Lone Ranger set, gun and mask and stuff. Okay. All right. Awesome. Sherry? A horse. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you got it, that's awesome. I mean, like, I love that. She's just like, a horse. And I got it. What? That's awesome. So because like, I want a pony. And no, no, you're not having a pony. That's not going to happen. Anyone else? What was that one gift? Yeah. A tetherball? Like legit pole, the whole out in the backyard playing tetherball. Okay. And I got it. All right. Man, I, my Christmas list was weak compared to this stuff. Like I was asking for matchbox cars and tracks. Diane. A cabbage patch doll. Any other ladies' cabbage patch doll when you were a kid was a big thing? You love those? couple? Okay. Anyone else? Well, let's do one more. One more. Something else that you just wanted so badly. I can't believe no one in my generation or my age is saying this. Yeah, Rhonda. Okay, Barbie doll. Those are always a good hit, right? Good one. Chris, I said one more. Go one more. Ice skates. Okay. Chad? Wrestling dummy. You talking like the uh, Ultimate Warrior... Like little guy that you just kind of could slam and, oh, Hulk Hogan. Okay. We had the ultimate warrior and man, that thing, (laughs) we used to get on the dresser and like pile drive it. It was awesome. My parents didn't think so, but we loved it. It was great. When I was a kid, the one gift for me, and I'll be 40 this year. I know it's really hard to believe. I look like I'm 26. Thank you. But, (laughs) but I'll be 40 this year. Well, I remember when I was a kid, probably, I, I don't know, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Uh, I wanted a Nintendo so bad. Now, we're not talking Nintendo Switch or Wii. I'm talking the real Nintendo, where you had to get the cartridge. (sighs) Okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? And it works. That doesn't work. It worked. Because then I had a little system. You go, (sighs) and it worked every time. Our Nintendo was kind of getting old, though, after we did get it for Christmas. I had to put another game in the top to hold the game down. I don't know if anyone had to do this, okay, because that was just what we did. But I remember wanting a Nintendo so bad. And when we got Nintendo, of course, it was a little bit after they had come out. And so when we got it, we got it. I thought it was so cool. I I really did. We had Super Mario Brothers 3. It came with it. And I thought all my friends had gotten like the first Mario Brothers or whatever with theirs. And I was like, mm, let me show you what's up. I've got the third one. And I'm not kidding you. We played that thing a lot. And my mom got to the point where the music in Mario Brothers, it's not exactly classical music. It's not exactly entertaining music. It's just this repetitive sounds of just dots and beeps and just, it's mind numbing. She got to the point where she said, if you play it, It has to be on mute. Like you cannot have the volume on because I'm going to throw it out the window. Okay. But we were so anxious for that. We just wanted it. So then we got it. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember what else I got that Christmas. 
I really don't. I probably got clothes and I was like, mm, socks, whatever, Nintendo, okay? But I remember thinking when we got that, it was, seemed like it was just so what I wanted, right? And we played it. I mean, we played it a lot for years. But you know what happened, right? Like after so many years, we ended up just getting rid of it. Because the next thing came out, I think it was a PlayStation or something, and, and I was, oh, okay, we'll do it that way, and, and we got one of those. And, and so we had this Nintendo for a long time, and it was great, and it was fun, but it broke down, right? It didn't work after a while. It kind of got old, and we, it just didn't have that appeal that it once had. And so I wanted to bring that up because I feel like so many of us can relate with, man, we want it so bad. We think this will do something for me. This will really make me happy and satisfied and fulfilled. It's going to really bring something into my life. And so we think if I can just get that thing. Now, I know we're thinking about toys and as we're kids, but as we're grown up, we've kind of done this in a lot of other things in our lives, have we not? And just so you know, it's a little early for it, I know, but I'm already excited for our series we're doing in January. And so uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a little promo for you for that. But just, it's called Chasing Carrots. And I'm so excited for this series. It's going to be an amazing way to kick off 2022. But I think we can do this with a lot of things in our lives. We want something so badly that we think if I can just get that, then everything will be fine. But then like everything else, it doesn't really live up to what we thought it would. It doesn't really do all that we thought it would do. And it sure doesn't last as long as we thought it would last. And so this Christmas, if I can encourage us as we begin the Christmas season, let's focus in on a gift that will never disappoint. A gift that will never let you down. A gift that will never get old. A gift that will always leave you satisfied, fulfilled, and your desires met. You can't find it on Cyber Monday or Black Friday. You can't go out and buy it in a store. The real gift of Christmas, as many of us know, is the person of Jesus Christ that we can receive the gift that is Jesus Christ into our lives and we can receive him as our savior and find that satisfaction. Now, let's not go, I'm not gonna go the other way with this where people are like, don't buy any gifts and you know, don't do this and don't do that. Listen, I love giving gifts to people. I do. I love wrapping it up and well, sometimes throwing it in the gift bag, depending, okay? I've always said gift bags were invented by men, right? Because no man is like, yeah, let me go buy some wrapping paper and just really take time. They're like, man, I got 20 minutes. Can we put it in a bag? And the Walmart bag wouldn't really work because that's a little chintzy. So they were like, I know. We'll create a bag that looks like wrapping paper. And then we'll put the stuff in that, put a little tissue paper on there, right? And now listen, there's ways to do tissue paper, apparently. I found this out. I usually just shove all the tissue paper in. My wife's like, no, no, you got to kind of bring it. And I'm doing this like she would do it. You got to bring it out and kind (laughs) of fluff it out, you know? And so... Okay, whatever. So I shove everything in the bag, grab the wrapping or the the tissue paper and put it in front of her and go, hey, do your magic. It's whatever you do. But as we think about this, it's great giving gifts. I'm all for giving gifts. I'm not saying, you know, be a Scrooge and like, don't do that or don't get involved in that. I do think there's a wisdom to be had for using caution when you buy gifts and how much you buy and why you buy and all those things. And we'll, we'll unpack that in the coming weeks, but I don't want to sound like, okay, if you have Jesus, you don't need to give a gift. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is whether you receive a gift physically, a a present, or whether you can give a gift, or maybe you can only give one thing. But if you have Christ, you have all you need this Christmas. That's the point. So it brings me to something that I heard a, a speaker say recently that I thought was really interesting. Christmas is a strange time in our culture because everyone loves Christmas as long as you don't dive in too deep about the Christ of Christmas. Everybody in our culture loves Christmas. If you don't believe me, just watch Hallmark Channel starting in like middle of October. And it's Christmas movie. Why? They don't make those just because they find the fun in making those. They make those movies because people watch them. And they watch them because as a culture, our culture, for the most part, really loves Christmas. As long as you don't dive in too deep about the Christ of Christmas. Man, we could talk about the gifts and the holidays and the eggnog and the parties and all those fun things. The, The spirit of Christmas, which means giving to others who are in need. And that's great. It's great to be generous. And I love that this time of year brings generosity out of people who maybe wouldn't be as generous normally. That's that's all good. 
But that's not the point of Christmas. Giving food to the needy is great. But if it's just done as a good work or some religious thing, it, it's good, but it doesn't have the fullness of what it could have if we did it in Christ's name. You see, Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to someone in need in my name. So it's great to do good things and be generous. But man, if we don't invite Christ into that, we lose something in that. It's good and it helps and it's, 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 it's helpful to that person. But in Christmas, let's not exclude Christ from what we're celebrating and what we're doing. And it's a strange time because we really shouldn't have to say, keep Christ in Christmas. His name is in the holiday. The Christmas stands for Christ Mass. And so it's all about Christ. It's centered on Christ and the coming of Christ. And yet we can forget that in our culture. And so how do we see this play out? Well, I want to give you an example of this that I found extremely interesting. The current Guinness World Record holder for the world's most expensive Christmas tree. So not, don't think the tree itself is expensive. We're going to explain it's everything on the tree as well. The world record holder for the most expensive Christmas tree is valued at about $11 million. Now, I I know like Chris Fox loves getting Christmas trees and deals and all that. I don't think Chris is spending that kind of money. $11 million. It was displayed in 2010 and it stood at 43.2 feet, 43 feet high was lavishly decorated with 181 pieces of jewelry, such as bracelets, necklaces, and watches. Now, what is interesting about this tree and all that was put on it and the amount of money invested in it is where it's located. Because see, even in our world, a lot of people love Christmas. This tree was located in the Emirates Palace Hotel. This is in Abu Dhabi. An Islamic country put up the most expensive Christmas tree because everybody loves Christmas as long as you don't dive too deep into the Christ of Christmas. We have to ask a question if we were to sit down with those that put the tree up and to explain to them the truth of Christmas and who Jesus is and what the gospel is and all of those things. I promise you by the end of that discussion, that tree will be on fire. They will not be standing once we really dive into what Christmas represents and who Christmas represents. You see, everybody loves Christmas as long as you don't dive too deep into it. The unique, wonderful gift that is all we need this Christmas and really what Christmas is all about is found in three simple words. God with us. God with us. I want to invite you to turn in the word of God this morning to Galatians in the New Testament chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Now, in the seats there in front of you, there are some Bibles that we're providing to you. If you need one, you can turn right to page 821. So 821, if you're using a Bible provided, is the page number. And we're going to find ourselves in Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 4. So Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Now I know this may not sound or be a place that you would normally turn for Christmas or a Christmas sermon. Uh, We will obviously spend time in Luke's gospel and other gospel accounts unpacking the birth of Christ in the coming weeks. But I wanted to start here this morning as we really understand this phrase, God with us. Because that's truly the heart of Christmas. That's truly the point of why we gather. It's why we're doing what we're doing. So Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul writing to the church of Galatia, and he's encouraging them. He's writing this letter to them to strengthen their faith. But listen to what he says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through 
Christ. I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you so much for this time of year. And Lord, I pray that we would dive into your word this morning and allow it to speak to our hearts and minds. And Father, I don't know where people are at this morning. I don't know what they come in the doors with. I don't know what's on their heart and minds, Lord. If it's one thing's true of the holiday season, when we get into Thanksgiving and Christmas, that usually what tends to happen is if we're having good things happen in our life and blessings and, and, and things are fruitful and full, the Christmas season can heighten those things and make them even seem better. But Lord, equally so, that when we're going through tough times or difficult times or trials of things of that nature, a loss of a loved one, Father, those very same things can be heightened as we get into Christmas. And so I know, Lord, that while we say everyone loves Christmas and we enjoy the lights and the decorations and the gifts and all those things, Lord, there may be somebody here, Lord, that is really struggling this, this week, this month. And I pray that as only you can, and I know you will, that you'd comfort them. I pray they would know your grace is for them. They don't need to feel guilty or bad because they are in, quote, the Christmas spirit or the Christmas mood. I pray that they would take those things to you, that they would be real before you and that you would lift them up and show them that you are for them. You love them. You see what they're going through. And Lord, while we never can understand it in the time we're going through it, for the most part, we know that you have a purpose and a plan that you're working for your good, for your glory and our blessing. So I pray that you would minister this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the word that you laid before us, that we would allow it to change us and conform us into the things that we need to say, the things we need to do, and the way that we need to live to honor you. Father, thank you for this, and pray that we would just honor you in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Galatians chapter 4, we must pause and, and realize what we just read. So often when we read scripture, we can just read through it and not really stop and pause. And, and what did that just say? Especially if we're familiar with scripture or we're familiar with the text. And when we read these words in verse 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. We must pause and realize that the scripture is telling us that there was a point in the past where God the Father sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus took on flesh, meaning he was born of a virgin. And he did that. He became the God-man, God with us, for one purpose, to glorify the Father, to honor the Father, and to please the Father in all things, and so that we might have a way of relationship, forgiveness of sins, that we might be brought into a relationship with Christ, sins forgiven for all eternity. This passage is so powerful because we read those words that God sent forth his son, and we can just read them and, and not realize the power there. He did not have to come, but he came. He chose to come to us because of his love for you, because of his love for the Father. So I want to remind you this morning, yes, God loves you. And we love the verse, John three sixteen. for God's love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We love that. But realize it is the love of the father, but it's also the love of the son that Jesus submitted and said, yes, father, I'll go. And we didn't need him to come because it was a good option. We needed him to come because he was the only option. There is no other way unto salvation, but through Christ, because we can't do enough. We need him to come and save us. And that's what God did. We also have to note, before we really dive into the heart of the message, this passage is also powerful because it reveals that God had a plan. Now, we unpacked this a couple weeks ago that God has a purpose and a plan in all that he does in our lives. And we have the hard time seeing that sometimes. But don't ever doubt that God is doing something in your life. I know it may not feel like it. I know you may see it's like it's chaotic and it's crazy and it's just chaos. It is not chaos. God is working his plan. And here we see that plan unfolding. There's a phrase here that we have to note. But when the fullness of time was come, you see, God had a plan and he was working the plan. God was not reacting to circumstances going on in the world. 
It's not as though God was in heaven going, oh, okay, I guess I better send my son to take care of this. Now, I didn't realize it had gotten so bad down there, I need to take care of this. God was not reacting to anything happening on planet Earth. God had a plan, and God, in his perfect time, sent his son. You see, God is over all of this, and he sent his son at the perfect time because it was God's time. You see, when the fullness of time was come, God did exactly what he intended when he intended, and how he intended it to be. So let's dive deeper into this Christ of Christmas and why it matters so much. So the first thing we have to ask is, who is Jesus? If we're going to dive into the Christ of Christmas, we have to ask, who is Jesus? And so what does the text reveal to us? Again, verse 4 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So the first thing we have to note is, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. He is equal to God. The Bible tells us that he did not find it robbery to be equal with God. He felt, he understood that he is God. He knew he was God. He was born the God-man, and he was never anything other than the God-man. He didn't cease to be God at one point and man at another. No, he was always God and man when he took on flesh. He is God. He was God. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, if you've never really read through the Bible book, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it is an amazing unfolding of all these truths that Jesus is better. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the better everything because he is God who took on flesh. And that's what it refers to here when it says that he was made of a woman. Jesus was born of a virgin, miraculous and unique, which is the meaning of the phrase, only begotten of the Father. And I reference John 3.16, that when it says that the only begotten of the Father. The Greek word used here in the original language for the word begotten, is also similar, or in John 3.16 rather, is similar to and means pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class, unique in kind. So in John 3.16, when it says he's the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son, what it's meaning is that it is unique in kind, unique in class. There is nothing like it. You see, there has never been a birth like that of the birth of Jesus Christ. There has never been a birth like the birth of Christ. Every other birth in humanity was and is, to be, to, is natural to the point that we can predict with some specific precision when a baby will be born. Once God created Adam and Eve and God gifted Adam and Eve with the ability to, to create life and to produce life, that is a natural process, is it not? Having a child is, is beautiful and it's a God's gift and it's miraculous in the sense that God allows it. But it's natural in the sense that we can predict with pretty good precision when a baby will be born. Think of it this way. If a baby is born a week after its due date, who gets the blame? If a baby is born a week after its due date, who gets the blame? The baby does. Because what do we say? The baby was Late, if the baby is born a month or a week early, whose fault is that? Well, the baby was early. The doctor never claims, oh, that's my bad. I, w I was just really wrong. That's my fault. No, because it is a natural process that God has created us with, and it's okay to acknowledge that God made us this way. So it's natural in the sense that it is predictable. I mean, almost down to the day. And even then, it's like, well, yeah, the baby was wrong. Oh, okay. But man, think of the birth of Christ. You see, the birth of a child is a wonderful and amazing thing. And I'll be honest with you, I have two boys that God has blessed me with, and I will never forget watching them be born. It is the most amazing thing I've ever experienced in my life. But my children's birth pales in comparison to the birth of Christ. It's not even comparable. It is unique, and it is wonderful, and it is beautiful when Christ came to this world. Again, compared to the birth of Christ, my children's births were natural and happen every day. Every day children are born. Every single day. 
But there was only one that was born Savior of the world. There was only one that was born unique and the only begotten of the Father. See, he was made of a woman. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus needed to be born of a virgin because when Jesus was born, he did not have a sin nature as we have. See, when we're naturally born with a, with a, a mother and a father, that when that happens, we carry down from them a sin nature that is passed on from Adam. But Jesus being born of a virgin did not have that sin nature when he was born. And this is God again at the fullness of time. God is doing what only God can do when God intends to do it. You see, he was made of a woman. But there's another phrase here, made under the law. Jesus came during the time of the law, meaning the Jews were governed by the law of the Old Testament and its requirements and sacrifices. Its requirements and sacrifices. Now, let's be clear here. The law of God is not nor ever was intended to be a bad thing. In fact, the law, according to what the Bible says, the law is what David said he would delight in day and night. He would delight and meditate upon the law of God. The law was intended to govern the children of God, the Israelites, in the land that God had given them. It was meant to be a help, not a burden. It was meant to be a help and not a burden. However, because of the sinfulness of mankind, because of the sinfulness of the Israelites, they were unable to keep the commands of God as we cannot keep the moral law of God today. You see, the Bible in the Old Testament, there's books that we call the books of the law. And in a couple of those books, we actually read the actual law that God gives. Now, the most popular of these writings of law are what we call the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law of God. The moral law of God. Don't kill. Don't steal. Right? Don't commit adultery. Honor your mother and father. These are the moral command. God says these are the moral law between mankind and us to God. And yet, in those Old Testament books of the law, we don't just read of the moral law. We read of two other kinds of law. There's ceremonial law, which also applies to some of the dietary things. So they had to worship in a certain way and do things in a certain way and how they worshiped God and went to the temple and did all these things. So there's a ceremonial law or a religious law, which also applies to some of their dietary things. And then there's a law of the land or civil law. This is how you function in the country, how you function in the land, how you treat one another. Those tons of laws that deal with how they were supposed to interact with each other. And in the same way today, we have laws of the land that govern how we live and how we function and how we should interact with each other. And so when you understand that when Jesus came, he did not come to do away with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. This is what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew records the words of Christ. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. And in every aspect, he was perfect in how he fulfilled the law of God. And so now today, when we receive Christ, we're not bound to live under the law. We're not bound to live under the ceremonial law, the dietary law, the, the civil laws of the land. We don't live in the land. But the moral law of God, while fulfilled in Christ and satisfied in Christ, and we are not bound to keep it, meaning if I violate one of the commandments of the Ten Commandments, I somehow now I'm not saved in Christ. I'm saved in Jesus Christ because he did all of that. Now I receive that for, for my forgiveness of sins. But the moral law of God is intact in that it still governs how we should live as followers of Christ. I should treat people a certain way because I know Jesus. And I should love my neighbor as myself. I should not covet what they have. I should not commit adultery. I should not steal. I should not kill. But when you think about those things and you realize, man, you know what? But I've done one of those things. I've broken one of those laws. We all have. See, the Bible says that if you offend in one area, you've offended in all. So you could say, well, I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've blasphemed the name of God, which means using the name of God for anything other than giving it honor and praise and holiness and reverence, if you've ever used God's name as a curse word, you have violated the law of God. You might say, well, I, I, okay, yeah, but that's not a big one. Again, if we break one, we break them all. That's what Jesus pointed out in the Gospels. He said, the law says this. Let me tell you what the heart of that really means. 
You see, people might say, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Well, I've never committed murder. Well, Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder against them. You see, Jesus' point was we can never in our own good deeds and good works satisfy the law of God. So he came under the law to fulfill the law that we might be able to receive the forgiveness of sins. So why did he come? Why did Jesus come? We know who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He was born of a woman, born of a virgin. And he was made under the law so that we might see him fulfill the law that we could benefit and be blessed because of that in salvation. So why did he come? Look at verse 5 again of Galatians chapter 4. Verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the first thing we have to notice here is it says that why did he come? For the purpose of redemption. Again, as I just unpacked, because we are under the law, guilty, and our need of redemption, he came for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to make God say, okay, yeah, you're good enough. I'm going to come and do this. No, he just loved us so much as his creation that he desired to come and do what was necessary that he would be glorified and we would be saved. And so he came for the purpose of redemption. I really love the word redemption here in this passage. The word actually means to redeem means to pay by payment of a price to recover from the power of another by payment of a price to recover from the power of another in Christ. And because of Christ, he does this work to freely elect from the dominion of the Mosaic law at the price of his vicarious death. So what does that all mean? What it means is this, that because Jesus died as the sacrificial lamb of God and was buried and rose again, he gave himself on that cross for us so that we who are guilty under the law of God violated all the commands of God's law. He fulfilled those things. And then when he died and rose again and we put our faith and trust in him, his faithfulness is accredited to our account. We are gifted that righteousness so that we might be made the children of God. That we are redeemed. We are bought back from the another. We are in guilt and shame and sin. And Ephesians 2 says dead in our sins. And he buys us back from sin, from self, from the enemy. And that's the beautiful part of the rest of this verse. He redeemed us. But then go on in verse 5. Not only just to redeem us, but it says this. That we might receive the adoption of sons. The adoption of sons. Just as we are all guilty in Adam, born in sin through Christ, we can be made righteous and be adopted from Adam's family line into the family of God. Again, not because we deserve it, but because he graciously chose to adopt us, to extend to us this invitation of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with him. The truth is, if we think of adoption, we are the child in the orphanage that isn't the cleanest. We need to hear this now. In our sin before Christ, we are not the cleanest child in the orphanage. We are not the well-behaved child in the orphanage. We are not the good kid. We're the kid that nobody wants to be around. We're the kid that can't listen. We're the kid that is just, just rebellious, just, just angry, just, just causing havoc. Others see us. They don't even want anything to do with us because they just see how bad we really are. We're one of the misfits. We're one of the outcasts. And when Jesus looks at us in that orphanage, and we're using this as an illustration, he doesn't look at us and say, nope, I can't do anything with this one. Nope, they're too far gone. Nope, did you see what they did last week? I can't, I can't do anything with them. No, no, I want this one over here who's cleaned up and ready to go and presenting themselves and looks the part. I don't want them. No, he comes to us. And not only does he adopt us, 
But in the process, when he gets down on that floor as we're huddled in a corner just by ourselves, isolated, thinking we're a horrible person, nobody loves us, nobody cares for us, and he picks us up, and the very filth and the very dirt that is on us gets on him, and he takes it gladly. He receives that and says, no, no, I'll get down with you in the trenches, and I will pick you up because I love you this much. Yeah, I know you're not the cleanest. I know you're not the best behaved, but that's okay. Let me tell you something. If you just trust in me, if you just believe in me, I can do amazing things in your life. And see, that's the beauty of the adoption process that we've received in Christ. But too often we think, well, I'm pretty good. I'm okay. You know, Jesus is really for those that are having hard times. Jesus is really for those that are having difficult seasons. And I understand when they need Jesus, but I'm pretty good. My bank account's pretty good. My, my house is pretty nice. I've got all the toys I could ever want. I've got a cabin and a boat and a four-wheeler, and I've got all this, and I've got a beautiful family, and I'm healthy, and I live in a great land, and I, I'm good, man. No, that's okay. Jesus is for those people that really need it, but that's okay. Thanks for asking. Man, when we realize what the Bible says, that we, because we are born in Adam naturally, we are also born under sin. And we are liable for not only the sin that passes down to us in our sin nature, but also the sins that we commit. And one day there will be a judgment. And there's only going to be two groups of people in heaven. Those that have been adopted into the family of God and those that are not. And those that are adopted will enter into joy and rest and peace and love with their father. And not because they've earned it, but because Christ offered it and we received it. And those that are not, this is not John, Pastor John's words and opinion. This is not North Carolina Baptist Church's opinion. The Bible says that those that are not sons and daughters of God will be cast from his presence in a place called hell. He actually says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So have you been... Adopted. Have you been adopted from one to another? Were you outside the body of Christ and at some point in your life received Christ and now you are adopted in as sons and daughter? You see, others see the fruit of our sinful choices while Christ sees us as his creation and offers us his forgiveness and grace. And so that we are adopted. And what does it mean to be adopted? I want to unpack this just real quick because I think it's important that Paul spends some time on this. He doesn't just say, you're adopted and period, done, no one else. He goes on. So why does he adopt us? Well, he adopts us quickly so that we can become sons and daughters of God. And you might think, well, yeah, we just talked about that. No, no, let's unpack that for a second and think about what that really means. Look at verses six and seven. And because you are sons and daughters... God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, our primary position before God in Christ is not a servant, but his child. We're not just the help. We're not just a servant. We're his sons and daughters in Christ. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, wait a minute. So then do we serve him? Well, of course we serve him. Of course we want to serve him. We already talked about this. We want to please him in all that we say and do because he gave so much for us. So we do serve him. But we have to understand, as we've been going through as a staff the last probably two months now, talking about what does it really mean to be a servant of Christ and what does it mean to serve and how is it we can serve and have the best attitude while serving? Not get, quote-unquote, burned out, which gets thrown around a lot. And I think the key is that we realize that as we serve him, we're only able to serve him because he is actually serving us. And he has served us. You see, he served us and was a blessing to us and served us in all that we needed by offering us the adoption that we needed, by being the sacrificial lamb. And now he serves us by giving us his spirits that we now have the spirit of God within us that can lead us and guide us and direct us and give us wisdom and the word of God and the things we do. And then as an overflow of that, he's praying for us, the Bible says. So he's still serving us just as much or more than he did when he was on planet Earth. And as an overflow of that, we now return and serve him. But we don't primarily serve so that we keep the relationship. We serve as a son or a daughter to honor him and all that he's done. Understanding our position in Christ as a son and a daughter will drastically affect not only how we 
serve and why we serve, but also how we pray, how we worship, and how we share our faith. If you see yourself as nothing but a servant, replaceable, just a number, you will worship and pray and serve differently. But if you see yourself as you truly are in Christ as a son or a daughter, man, you'll pray different. You'll worship different. You'll share your faith differently. You'll serve differently because, hey, if God can do this for me, it's nothing for me to honor my father in this way. There are some powerful differences between sons and servants. And I want to share this from a resource that I was studying this last week. Some powerful differences between sons and servants. And let me say again, if, if you're taking notes, awesome. You guys know the statistic by now. 98% of people who take notes in church get to heaven. So right now, it's a little late in the game this morning. You might want to start writing something down. Just saying. I'm kidding, of course. But if you are taking notes, awesome. But if you aren't able to keep up, or I, I know I talk fast sometimes. Sandra's always like, slow down. Like, I'm sorry. Okay, just get so excited. But if you want the notes, I can send these to you digitally. Just, just reach out to me. Ask me for them. I can send them to you through whatever, Facebook, email them to you, whatever. Um, but I want to go through these four key differences quickly. So the first thing we have to note is the son has a father. The servant has a master. Now, again, is he our master? Yes. Is he our Lord and King? Yes. But primarily in our position in Christ... He is our father. Isn't that what Paul just said? He is our father. Yes, he's Lord and king and savior of my life. And I worship him as Lord and savior. He is king of all. He has right to every area of my life. There is no point in my life that I can say, oh, this is mine, God, and that all is yours. There's no such thing as sacred and secular in the believer's life. It's all sacred. I don't get to tell God, you get Sunday, I get Monday through Saturday. I should say, we can tell him that. He allows us to do that, but you also see the consequences of that choice in your life. But man, you want to be full and satisfied in Christ? Give him everything and watch him fill you like nothing else can or will. You see, the servant has a master, but the son has a father. He is your father in Christ. The son obeys out of love. The servant obeys out of fear. See, we don't obey out of fear. The Bible says in 1 John, perfect love casts out all fear. Man, I serve my father and I honor my father out of love. That is my primary emotion. The son has a future. The servant does not. There's no guarantee for the servant replaced tomorrow if they don't perform. If they don't live up to the standard, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They can just be booted out and replaced. But, oh, man, as a son of God, as a daughter of God, you have a future, a guaranteed hope that is not based on your performance, but it is based on the person of Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. And you have a future in Christ. One more. And I'm sure there's many, many more that we could look into and study. But I want to give you one more. The son is rich. The servant is poor. Now, I want to unpack this because... This is one of those things that we've talked about. People can really run a couple different ways with. The son is rich. The servant is poor. How is it that we are rich? Well, as heirs with Christ, we have the riches that he has. Now, we might think riches and think financial, monetary. I want us to think better than that, higher than that. There's so much better than money. And the riches of Christ, man, money is the least of what you think of or should think of. And by the way, we said it last week, God is not obligated to provide for your wants. He is only obligated by his own faithfulness to himself and to you to provide for your needs as he defines your needs. And so what do we mean by these riches that we have? Well, I'll give you a couple examples here. We have the riches of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. We have the riches of his glory. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. We have the riches of his goodness. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. We have the riches of his wisdom. Romans 11, verse 33. And we have the riches of his grace, his glory, his goodness, and his wisdom. 
And how are all of these things available to us? Well, they're all found in Christ. And as heirs with Christ, we also have access to these things. And we find that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9, and then chapter 2, verse 3. So a lot of verses there I know. But again, if you missed one, just let me know. I can give you the notes later or let you know. But man, we are rich in Christ. The riches of his glory are displayed among us. And you might think, what are you talking about? Man, when you go into your life this week and you voice the name of Christ and you live for the things of Christ and you're glorifying him, his riches are on display through you. Just like the riches of that Christmas tree and all those decorations are on display. They hang them on the tree for everyone to see and look at our wealth and look at our finances. Look at how wealthy we are. But listen, believer, when we go out into the world and we display the truth of who Christ is, and the glory of his grace and his riches and his wisdom, man, it's displaying the fullness of who God is and he is glorified and you are wealthy. Not talking about finances, but we are wealthy in Christ. Some have suggested that this illustration that Paul is using of adoption would be understood in a Roman mindset as he's writing in a Roman culture. In the Roman practice, when a man adopts someone outside of their family, there is a two-step process that takes place. First, there is a private ceremony. Then, there is a public ceremony where it was declared before the officials. Some have suggested, and again, this is just opinion of Christian authors and commentaries. Some have expressed that when we experience the private ceremony, that is when we receive Christ. For ourselves. We received him as our savior. And in that private moment, we become sons and daughters of God. We know it. We've experienced it. We know it in our hearts. We know what we've believed and confessed and professed. And so we are adopted. But then one day when he returns, we will stand before him complete. Our adoption process will be finalized and we are declared before all of heaven as his sons and daughters. You see, right now we've experienced that private ceremony, but one day we will stand before him, before his throne and be declared as sons and daughters of God, not for our glory, but for his glory. And all of heaven will rejoice. The most amazing and life, eternal life changing gift of all time is God with us. Yet equally amazing and maybe even more incredible is us with God. There's something amazing that God would come to us, but there's something even more incredible when God would allow us to be with him. It's powerful when we realize that. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be unpacking that truth that since God is with us, we have a peace delivered, a hope restored, and a love freely given. So join us in the next three weeks because we're going to talk about this. A hope restored, a love freely given, and a peace delivered. Delivered. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads right there where you are. And as you bow your heads right there where you are, I'm going to ask you to respond to what God is doing. And I'm asking you to pray right there where you are, just to begin to seek him and just spend time with him. And I want you to actually honestly think about the reality that, that God came to us. That in the person of Christ, that God was with us. And John says in John chapter 1 that we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, give you a chance to respond. But I want to ask you as you're, as you're praying there to think about a couple key things that I want you to, to apply or maybe to ask yourselves to really evaluate. First and foremost, do you know Christ? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? And as your heads are bowed there and you're just praying through that, I want you to ask yourself, honestly, do you know a time in your life where you admitted your sin before God, believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again, and you've received that gift of salvation for yourself? You've asked him by faith and through grace to forgive you of your sins. The words might sound different, the prayer that you prayed when that happened might sound different, but those are the key things that we want to be recognizing. 
And so if you're here this morning and, and you, you've never done that, you don't know a time where you've done that, maybe this morning you would, right there where you are, ask Christ to save you. You see, in the same way that God was over the coming of Christ and the fullness of time God sent his son, I want you to know that as you're here and your heads are bowed, you're not here by accident. God knew you'd be sitting in that chair this morning. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him today, receiving the fullness of salvation. Because before the world was even created, God knew you'd be sitting in that chair and he knew you needed him. Whether here in person or joining us online, maybe you would evaluate that for yourself. But secondly, maybe you're here and you know Christ. And you want to come in just a moment and just worship him and be thankful that he came that he adopted you and called you a son, his daughter. Maybe you want to worship him this morning for that. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been living not as a son and daughter, but as a servant. You've been living in fear, obeying in fear, not thinking of yourself in the position that Christ says that you are in him, which is a son and a daughter. So maybe you would come and ask the Lord to give you wisdom in that that you would live in a way that would reflect your true position in Christ, serving him, yes, but out of love. So whatever God is doing, would you just respond to him? Father, lead, guide, and direct by the moving of your spirit. Thank you for everyone that is here, Lord. And I pray that they would receive what you have for them and respond to you accordingly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As you stand, we want to give you time to respond as the band leads us in a song of invitation. Maybe you would come and pray here in the front by yourself or with someone else and just want to spend some time before the Lord. Whatever it is, would you respond to him as we sing?